All right, uh, good morning again. Great to be together. Um, I want to begin with a little family business for uh, just a couple of moments. Um, sometimes during our life together and our Sunday morning time together, we recognize and celebrate births and baptisms and occasionally birthdays and the very other special days. Today is a very important, significant, tender, poignant birthday. Uh, Steve Evans, today's your birthday, and we want to send you our uh, love and joy during this particular season of your life. We love you. And also want to recognize not a birth uh, and not a birthday or a baptism, but another kind of new beginning. Uh, Julian and Rachel celebrated their wedding about two weeks ago, so love and joy to you guys. We celebrate with you. We're starting a new series or study this morning on what is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. The very Jewish Gospel writer Matthew, all of the Gospel writers, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are different in who they were and in their approach to recounting uh, Jesus. So the very Jewish Gospel writer Matthew groups together five collections or teachings in his Gospel of Jesus, uh, different things that Jesus said and taught. And maybe this was a nod to Moses and the book of the law. Uh, Being very Jewish, that's a lot of uh, the foundation and the core for Matthew. And so he groups together, just as there are five books of the law or five books of of Moses that begin the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, and really were foundational for them. Matthew seems to group together five collections of Jesus' teaching in his book to kind of mirror what was happening from a Jewish perspective and to say in some ways, Jesus knew Moses. Moses had been the most important figure uh, for the Jewish people up to this point. Uh, Matthew weights his gospel heavily toward Jesus' teaching. You remember in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus frequently is said to teach, but Mark rarely tells us what Jesus taught. Matthew, on the other hand, uh, has Jesus as teacher, as rabbi, and tells us a lot of what he taught. The renowned author, theologian, and professor, the Englishman John Stott, wrote about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. Bam. And there were most likely uh, collections of Jesus that partly following his sources, he had grouped together. Jesus didn't necessarily speak all of these things, scholars believe, at one time or in that order. But Matthew likely grouped together a number of things that he heard Matt, Jesus saying in different times, in different contexts, in different settings, to different people. And Jesus probably taught these exact things a number of times, and not just one day on a hillside. But in all of these things, what's important to remember, as we will see, is that Jesus was present. This is the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is inherently a part of these words and can't be separated from his words. So this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time setting the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that in a moment. First, a question, then we'll pray. Here's the question. Who, according to the world, is well-off? Who is well-off? Or another way of saying that is, who has the good life? Okay? Who is well-off or who has the good life? Not a rhetorical question. I'm going to ask you, what, what would you say? How would you respond? According to the world, 
Who is well off? Who has the good life? Talk it out. Tell me. The wealthy. Powerful. People who are healthy. What? We all do? Okay. What else, according to the world? Who is well off? Who has the good life? Americans? The educated? Those who are happy. Any others? Not a right or wrong answer necessarily here. All right, good. Did you say something else? The famous. Absolutely. We adore and look up to people who are famous, to celebrities of all sorts. We're going to keep those things in mind as we progress into Jesus' teaching. First, uh, pray with me. God, in so many ways, we want to be well off. We want the good life. We acknowledge that. And toward that end, we ask that you would teach us, enlighten us, help us, save us from other paths, other ways, from deception and untruth. We ask that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see, that you would give us hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive from your word that which you would have us know and become. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way from your word, may they immediately be forgotten. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, and now here's the setting. Get us up to speed in Matthew's Gospel. The first chapter of Matthew's Gospel is a genealogy, a very Jewish genealogy, from Abraham to Joseph, the father or the stepfather of Jesus. And then in chapter 1, the birth of Jesus. Chapter 2, Matthew records the uh, Magi uh, coming to see or visit Jesus, and then Mary and Joseph whisking uh, the infant Jesus off to Egypt to escape or to hide or to avoid the murdering King Herod. When King Herod dies, they bring him back to uh, the land of the Jewish people and specifically to Nazareth. Chapter 3, Matthew tells his readers about John the Baptist and about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And then John actually baptizes Jesus. In chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads this now recently baptized and going public Jesus into the wilderness for a season of tempting by the devil, after which, having stood up to every temptation that the devil could throw at him and not being swayed by any of them, Jesus begins preaching, he begins traveling to preach, and then he begins healing right after that. All sorts of things in all sorts of people, diseases, maladies, and people filled with evil spirits. Jesus heals. Then and only then do we get to chapter 5 in Matthew's gospel where Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, the first part of which is one of the richest and most beloved passages of Scripture, familiar words to all of us, uh, that uh, along with Psalm 23 and maybe the Lord's Prayer are most familiar and most beloved. So listen closely. That's where we begin. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. These were all the crowds that had been following him at the end of chapter 4. He went up on a mountainside, from which we get the term Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're aware that there are lots more people than just his 12 disciples, or four or five or six at this point disciples with him. But that's what Matthew says there. Jesus is very much the teacher in Matthew's eyes, so in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is not only teacher, but he is preeminently teacher. Now verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, repeated from the first blessing. And then verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Indeed. And many of us have heard some of these nine statements or all of them we are familiar with and they ring a bell, they echo in our minds and hearts and you may though know them as they have commonly been known or called over the centuries as the Beatitudes, exactly. And people seem to love the Beatitudes. They're written on bookmarks, they're written on coffee mugs, they're written on uh, refrigerator magnets, they're probably stitched into all sorts of wall art and pillows for your couches in your living rooms. But what do they mean? What are they about? How do they function? What was Jesus trying to say with these words that begin or that were prelude to or the opening remarks to his so famous sermon and maybe the best known sermon in human history? What do these words mean? What did Jesus mean? We have to know what Jesus was doing with these words before we can know what to do with these words. We have to know what Jesus was doing with these words before we can know what to do with these words. And I think many people, Christians and non-Christians, church people and non-church people over the centuries don't know what Jesus was doing with these words. Many people have misunderstood these words of Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about now. But first, let me say this, in all fairness and transparency this morning, Jesus' so-called Beatitudes have been understood in more than one way throughout history. And this morning, I'm going to advocate for one understanding, that I, along with many others, believe has merit or greater merit than other ways than how many people have understood teacher, rabbi, Jesus' words throughout history. So here we go. Many people throughout history have heard Jesus say in his Beatitudes, do this or be this and you will be blessed. Do this or be a certain way and you will be blessed. Do such and such or have such a mind or a disposition or an attitude and you will be blessed. And it's easy to think in those ways. That's how the world works. That's how we've experienced and seen the world working. If I do this, then I will get this. If this happens or this person does this, then this will be the result. That's how the world works. Moreover, these nine statements or declarations of Jesus have for a long time in English been known as the Beatitudes, which sounds a lot like Jesus is telling his disciples and us to be a certain way. We just be a certain way and we will be blessed. God will bless us if we just be like that. Or differently, but similarly, if we have just a certain attitude, in other words, be attitude, if we choose a certain attitude, then we will be blessed by God. Then we'll get blessed. Then God will bless us. Then God will have to do for us what God has promised to do or what we ask God to do. 
But when we look at Jesus' words a little more closely and attentively, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's not at all what Jesus is saying. The word beatitude is not actually a combination of the words be and attitude, as we might think it is. Rather, it comes from the Latin word beatus or beatus, which means happy and doesn't tell anyone to do anything or be any way. Interesting to me. And so Jesus was not telling his disciples in these verses to do anything. In these verses, Jesus was not telling his disciples or us to do anything at all. Rather, Jesus was simply stating facts. Jesus was declaring truth. Jesus was describing reality. He was pulling back the veil on God and who God is and how God is and the way God works and how the kingdom of God operates. Stay with me. Jesus' words in verses 3 to 12 of chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel that we know as Jesus' introductory remarks to this Sermon on the Mount, this prelude of sorts contains not imperatives, in other words, do this or do that, but rather indicatives. In, not imperatives, but indicatives that describe truth and reality and fact that indicate how the world actually is and operates. Back in chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, in verse 17, Matthew tells his readers, us, these words, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or the heavens, literally, it's plural in the Greek, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And most scholars believe that when we often see the phrase kingdom of heaven or heavens in Matthew's gospel, in particular, Jesus, Matthew is really saying in a different way without using the word God, kingdom of God. And this kingdom, you know, was Jesus' primary focus. He talked more about the kingdom of God than he did anything else in any of the Gospels continually. It was on his heart and on his mind. And so we should pay attention. Matthew tells us in chapter 4 that the thrust and the primary substance of Jesus' preaching and teaching was to repent. And you remember that literally means, we talked about a few weeks ago, to think differently, to think again, to reconsider. It's often attached to sin, but not here. So think differently, think again, reconsider about the sin that so easily entangles, but hear about the kingdom of God and what this kingdom is and how it works and how someone or some person gets access to or enters or participates in this very present kingdom that has come near, that Jesus inaugurates, that he points out to people all of a sudden. Still with me. What if Jesus was not telling his disciples what they had to do or how they had to be, but instead Jesus was telling them simply who is blessed and how they are blessed and implicitly why they are blessed? I'll say it again. What if Jesus in these nine so-called beatitudes was not telling his disciples what they had to do or how they had to be, but instead Jesus was telling them simply who is blessed? And how those people are blessed, and also implicitly why. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. A little pet peeve, of which I have many. Uh, get out of the habit of saying blessed when you read and think about the Beatitudes, which is the way I always heard it growing up. Blessed are, but what does blessed mean? 
but instead simply say blessed, because I know what blessed means. I know what it means to be blessed. But sometimes I get lost in the blessed because it's very religious language. Huh? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Does that make any sense? Happy are the sad. What was Jesus saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. It begins to make a little bit more sense to our way of thinking when we get down in it. And then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those who are insulted because of Jesus or because of their associating themselves with Jesus or attempting to follow Jesus. But those are the kinds of people that in our world today are often called blessed. Rather, those are the people who have suffered. Those are the people who do suffer. Those are the people who sometimes in the back of our minds, the recesses of our heart, think may actually be cursed. We don't normally call them blessed. And so what is this blessedness? The Greek word that's usually translated blessed and here is translated blessed is makaroi or makaros which in other places and outside of the Bible is translated as happy or fortunate or even lucky or congratulations. Congratulations. Someone might even describe those who are makarioi as well-off or having the good life. Those who have true well-being or at least access to such because the kingdom or the reign of God, the rule of God, has come near. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, change your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what Jesus preached. And then Jesus demonstrated or gave a taste of God's kingdom to those who had gathered, to the crowds who had assembled, to the masses who were following him. Rewind to chapter, the end of chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. The kingdom of heavens, or the heavens, or the kingdom of God comes near and people are healed. Jesus announces the kingdom's availability, and then in order to validate his message and to show his authority, to teach and declare and to preach, he heals some people, lots of people. And what had all of those people done to be healed? To earn the right to be healed, to prove that they were worthy of being healed, nothing. Nada. Nothing at all. They hadn't done anything. Followed masses. Often selfish motives is how that works. So this is how, the, how it worked. The king shows up, Jesus shows up, and with him came a new presence and accessibility to this thing he called the kingdom of God, and that was for everybody, regardless of status they had or not have. In fact, they certainly must have been the sort of riffraff, these people, slackers, not working, not nose to the grindstone doing their jobs, leeches, toxic, immoral people in that huge crowd. And Jesus begins his teaching by announcing, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
In other words, blessed are the spiritual zeros. Do we ever say in church, look around and say to the people next to you, you're a spiritual zero. (laughs) Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. Blessed are all of you, the poor in spirit, when the kingdom of heaven comes. Of course, today the words poor in spirit no longer convey the sense of spiritual destitution that they were originally meant to bear by Jesus and by Matthew. Amazingly, they have come to refer to a praiseworthy condition. Haven't we sort of tweaked and done a 180 with that phrase? So that in our minds now, poor in spirit simply means humble and is virtuous, which is not at all what Jesus says. But standing around Jesus as he spoke where people with no spiritual qualifications or abilities at all, you would never call on them for spiritual work that needed to be done. There was nothing about them to suggest the breadth of God might move through their lives. They had no charisma, no religious glitter or clout. They didn't know their Bible. They didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't know the law. They would be the last ones to say that they had any claim whatsoever on God. And over the course of hundreds of years, people have tried to make sense of this phrase, poor in spirit, which occurs only here in the New Testament, into something that's virtuous and admirable and desirable and respectable and good, something God desires and approves or requires, so that it can serve as a reasonable basis for the blessedness God bestows. But such an understanding actually undermines what Jesus intends to teach, and the thrust of Jesus' blessed declarations. That understanding undermines it. Jesus didn't say blessed are the poor in spirit because they were poor in spirit. It wasn't because they were poor in spirit that he said blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit in no way qualifies a person for the kingdom of the heavens. There's no indication here that it does. For the kingdom of God. But human nature draws us to that sort of thinking because, as Kathy Keller has said, the default mode of the human heart is self-justification. I'll say that again. The default mode of the human heart is self-justification, which is true for me. I don't know if it's true for you. We're always looking for a way to prove ourselves, to show ourselves worthy, to prove ourselves to ourselves and to others and to God. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works, thank God. And that's not how God is, thank God. Are you still with me? There was and is a way to say in Greek, you will be blessed if you're poor in spirit. If you become poor in spirit. There are ways in Greek to say that. There are options for that. That's not what Matthew recorded. That's not what Jesus chose to say. Rather, Jesus declares what in many ways was intolerable and is to us human beings, and especially those of us who are religious, that God might bless people just because of their need and just because that's who and how God is and what God chooses, apart from the worthiness or goodness of any one of us. In the words of New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner, the Beatitudes originally originally described people in deplorable situations. The Beatitudes originally described people in deplorable situations. 
But we have turned and twisted and contorted poor in spirit and other phrases into something positive when there was nothing about them or in them or of them that was positive or desirable or noble or lovely in Jesus' day, in Jesus' mind. What was lovely and admirable and beautiful and glorious, however, was that Jesus begins his sermon and his ministry not with demands, but with blessings. And this tells us something about Jesus. He blesses before he commands. He helps before he orders. And that is this thing that we call grace. You know it. In the words of Dallas Willard, So we must see Jesus' message for what it is. Blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, misshapen, deformed, the too big, too little, too loud, too bald, too fat, and the old, for they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. And Willard continues, Then there are the seriously crushed ones, the flunkouts, the dropouts, the burned outs, the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden. The brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time. The overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed and unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in a nice rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead, and on and on and on. Is it true that earth has no sorrow? that heaven cannot heal, he asks. But you don't have to wait until you're dead. Jesus offers all people this blessedness now in his present kingdom. Even to murderers and child molesters, the brutal and the bigoted, drug lords and pornographers, war criminals, sadists, terrorists, the perverted, the filthy, the filthy rich the shameful and the ashamed, all of us. The Ted Kaczynskis, the Jeffrey Dahmers, you could fill in the gaps, fill in the blanks. All of them, all of us, they are blessed, we are blessed. Why? Not because of something any of us have done or been, though there will be many things to do later. The bar bar will be very high in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will continue to raise the bar and raise the bar. But now, at the beginning, God comes to us not with demands and requirements and commandments, but first of all, with love and acceptance and grace and mercy and offering goodness that will follow us all of the days of our lives. I don't know if you pay attention to the lyrics we sing. Song number three this morning. If you rewind it in your playlist. In the, in the kingdom of God, people are blessed not because of who they are or how they look or what they have or their supposed spiritual stature, and we're really good at playing that game in the church. Or anything else like that, in the church or outside of the church, and not even because you know the king, but because the king knows you. Because the king knows you. And now that the king Jesus has shown up, everything is different. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of God is accessible. The kingdom of God is available. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Now I'm going to try something a little bit different that we've never done before, or I've never done before, and it's a little risky with live stream. But I'm done. We could go on a lot longer. I got about two or three more hours worth of stuff. We just kind of touched on the first of those blesseds. Way more to go, but I'm going to hit pause and say, uh, 
do you have any questions? Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask for yourself or for everyone else that no one else uh, wants to voice, but they are thinking? If you want to vehemently disagree with me, forum after worship, after the live stream's done. That's fine. Glad to dialogue about any of this. But want to know at this point, any questions about what we're talking about, what we're discussing, what I've thrown out there? And I'll be patient for a moment. I know, it's weird creating dialogue in here. What's the definition of what? Repent. Is, we uh, talked about this a few weeks ago, and uh, the Greek word is metanoieo, verb metanoia, noun, and it means literally to think again or think differently or reconsider. Most literally, just as a word apart from itself. In the scriptures in the New Testament, it's often attached to sin, but not always as in here, where it means turn away from or think differently about sin, maybe the sin that so easily entangles you. In the Old Testament, the Greek word is shuv, or the Hebrew word is shuv, and it really has more of the idea of turn all the way around, turn from your sin and the things that keep you from God, and turn to God, relying on his grace in Jesus, which is one of our baptism questions. Great question. That's a great question, Peggy. Peggy's question is, and I didn't hear every word, but is my husband, who's sitting at home, twiddling his thumbs, watching uh, NFL preseason maybe, whatever, Hope he's not watching this now. Is, are, are we saying he's the blessed one? Jesus is saying he's the blessed one. Great question. He's saying that, he, that Jesus, he's declaring your husband blessed because Jesus has shown up in his world through you. And because of that, the blessings of God and the grace of God and the love of God are available to him, and that makes him blessed. Having God's favor. I know that's a radically different way of thinking. So Jesus starts with grace. We normally start with law and live in law and function with law most of the time. Yeah, so it doesn't fit, so we go looking in this passage for some other way of interpreting it that makes more sense. Hopefully we're taking a small step forward on that. I think Jesus is naming a lot of people in the crowd and saying what he brings, what he ushers in is for all of you. Here it is. For all of you, people who primarily hadn't thought of themselves as worthy, as upright, as spiritually rich, but as spiritually poor, who in that world and in our world aren't worthy, don't have a pedigree, don't deserve the power, the love, the transformative goodness of God in their lives. But Jesus says, you do, not based on your goodness, but on God's goodness. He's announcing, this is Jesus coming out, this is his inauguration, not just of himself, but also of a different way of thinking, metanoia, about God and his kingdom. Liz's question was, in, in verses 3 through 10, Jesus says, refers to them, and then in verse 11 and 12, he refers to you. Uh, 
he's talking probably broadly to the masses in 3 through 10, and the word you is plural in the Greek, all of you, and specifically those his disciples. I think he points just to them because they're the only ones to whom verses 11 and 12 really apply at that point because only they are suffering for following Jesus at that point. I think. It's a great question, and there's a lot of dissecting that we can do and disrupting with this passage, but it's a great observation. Well, not repeat Walter's question, but uh, respond and affirm that Matthew is writing to a, a more Jewish audience than the other gospel writers. He has them in mind, and he's speaking to both those who have tried to obey the law, keep the law, uh, on their hamster wheel of spirituality, trying to earn God's favor, and those who also have given up, who have fallen by the wayside, who don't even try anymore, who are on the outside of the religious system and culture of the Jewish people, but are still Jewish. And it's for all of them, this message. Does that respond to your question? Okay, uh, last one in the back. That's a great question, and it would take a good while to go through a lot of these, and some of them aren't going to be satisfying to view from that answer. But Terry's question is, how could blessed are the, blessed are the peacemakers be uh, seen in that time as negative? I refer you to the MMA. There you go. Think about it for a moment. In that, that we can't read back into their culture the way we think in our culture, where making peace seems like a pretty good thing. But not if you're a, if not if you're an MMA fighter, right? Making peace is a sign of weakness. Making peace is a sign of fear. Making peace is a sign of lack of confidence. So uh, it is a little bit of a stretch to understand that because everything that we value or think is good can be wrapped up in peacemaker. There can also be the understanding that Jesus declares, even to you peacemakers, those of you who are all over the spectrum, and including the name peacemaker really just provides variety, that it's not just this person or this person or this person, the dirty, the mourning, the sick, the, the poor, or in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel, the poor in spirit, but Luke's gospel, the simply poor, which has all kinds of economic overtones and undertones as well. So it's a great question. Um, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. We can dig into it more afterwards in the chapel. It's been uh, great to do something fun and different for a couple of minutes. I'm going to pray. Help us to understand, God, what's hard to understand uh, emotionally and spiritually and cognitively as well. 
Help us to make sense of that which you have revealed, that which you have given, of who and how you are. Thank you for the offer and the extending to us your kingdom without us having to qualify or fill out an application and be good enough. We thank you that you love us and that along the way you call us to goodness and to a good way, to repentance of all different sorts. Help us. We need you. We love you. We praise you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.